0: So we've been plugging through James, and in case you aren't convinced yet, I'm not headed anywhere fast. I want to understand what it is that we're digging into, and the joy for me, in part, is the details. The things that I feel like part of my charge is to offer what you wouldn't obviously already know. And so uh, we have been Journeying through James, and we're going to do it again. And so we're back. James is the oldest epistle in the New Testament, not by way of its content, but by way of when it was written. It was written by James, the half brother of Jesus Christ, early in the life of the church, with a particular purpose that is more relevant today, perhaps, than it's ever been. And uh, I want to, I thought about how do we get back into this? So My goal today is to give you a high-speed overview of where we've been, and then I want to challenge you at the end in recognition that this book is as relevant as any book in the New Testament for where we're living right now. What we're going to study on Sunday, the Bible's always relevant, so I don't want to imply some verses more relevant than other verses, but by way of context, this book fits right where we're living as a culture. And 1 Peter, which is where uh, we began in the evenings uh, last Sunday night, Pastor John and and Mark Zakovich up tonight, is probably the other most relevant to where we're living book as it relates to what's going on and how to respond to what's going on. So just some highlights, and then we're going to jump in, and I'm going to give you a high-speed commentary all the way up to where we're going to be when I return. Now, just a word to you. I fly tomorrow to Erie, Pennsylvania, and Karen and I are going to get to spend a week together crossing the country. Um, and so I'm not sure that I'll make it back next Sunday because of all the weather forecasted in the middle of the country. It's twenty five hundred miles. Um, so in the event that I don't make it back, we have a Q&A scheduled with your elders Uh, So my not being here is not because I don't want to be faithful to have continuity. It'll simply be because some snowdrift somewhere in America uh, caught us. And so we're we're traveling across the country. Um, First time Karen and Harry have had a chance to spend that kind of time together. Um, And I am truly looking forward to that. And then Karen's parents are in the middle of Arkansas, so... We'll probably head south from Erie to get to warmer temperatures and then I-40 across the country. So I'm telling you that just, A, you can pray for us. But B, if I don't make it back to do installment number two, you'll know that I'm not evading you or avoiding you. It's just I couldn't get here. So and then we'll pick back up. Okay. All right. Let me uh, offer you some highlights. Let's talk James. Who was here when we did this? James. Okay. Let me ask another question. Who wasn't here? <laughs> here we go. Okay. So who is James? James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus, and one of those children was James. Not from a particularly significant family. He was referred to in the Gospels, uh, Matthew 13 and Mark 6, as one of the tribe of a carpenter from Nazareth. They they actually referred to Jesus. So who is this guy? He's from a no-name place and a no-name family, referring to Jesus. And by association or implication, then, the whole family of children were considered to be not significant. So maybe the big idea is James enjoyed no specific honor in terms of his heritage, his pedigree, his prestige. Number two, he offered no honor to his half-brother, who was the Son of God living in his house. Matter of fact, the, the Bible says of James and his brothers, and this is in John chapter 7, you'll probably remember this, They were uh, exhorting and imploring Jesus to go to Jerusalem, basically to show his disciples he was the real deal. Housed in that commentary or encouragement is the idea that you want fame, you want to attract attention, why don't you go to the place where people are gathering, a couple million people would gather in Jerusalem for the feast day. Why don't you go there and show off? See if you can provoke interest. It it reads this way, his brothers go, this is them to Jesus, go so your disciples will see, your disciples will see, housed in that is, and we are not your disciples. You want fame? Go to Jerusalem, for not even his, this is divine inspired commentary, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Which is just a mammoth Kind of shocking commentary on James's condition. How can you grow up with Jesus and not believe? He was divine from the beginning. The Pleroma, the fullness of God, dwelt in him in bodily form. He was teaching leaders in the uh, temple when he was 12. He was astounding people with his insight and with his words, and yet his brothers didn't believe. James was one of those brothers. But James went on to become one of the most significant players in the New Testament in terms of the kingdom of God. We learn in Acts chapter 15, well, actually, we see him with his mother and some of his siblings in the upper room. Where the disciples had gathered 120, and they were waiting on the promise of the Holy Spirit. So he was a part of Pentecost. And then he graduated with the birthing of the church in Acts chapter two and the early chapters of Mark, or Matthew, excuse me, of Acts. He was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, let me put it this way, the largest church in the world. They added 3,000 the first time, they added 5,000 the second time, and when Peter preached and the church grew rapidly, there was this explosion of transformation among the Jews and among the Gentiles, and at the head of the class, the prominent spokesman, this is Acts 15, was James. James when the question came as to what is required to have a relationship with god what's required for the gospel do you need to have faith plus you need to live the mosaic law and apply the principles and the requirements of the law circumcision etc is that what is needed to be converted and james after peter spoke and the debate was had among the elders and the apostles james stood up and gave a prominent, confirming leadership statement demonstrating his unique role in the church as its spokesman. Um, Eusebius wrote uh, Clement of Alexandria in first first, second century, rather, history, said that James was the first to be elected the Episcopal of the, of the church of Jerusalem. Episcopal meaning overseer, like the president the chief spiritual leader in Jerusalem, was James. He's referred to in Galatians as a reputed pillar in the church. So James goes from a man of no honor who granted Jesus no honor to a place of high responsibility and honor in the church at Jerusalem. The question is, well, what happened to him? Well, what happened to him as he received, by the grace and goodness of God, a special appearance of his half-brother who wasn't trusted by James initially after his crucifixion. Jesus appeared specifically and personally to James. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. He appeared to 500 at one time, and then it's mentioned specifically that James received the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So this non-believer, became a convinced believer. He was unique. He enjoyed a place of prominence as the leader of the church, the largest church in the world. And he was a unique man, and he enjoyed, by way of reputation, question what kind of man was he. He wasn't just a man who held a place of honor. He was a man who enjoyed virtue, and therefore people gave him honor. James was called the Just. That was his nickname. Imagine you thinking so highly of me that you would say, that's Harry the Just. Or your pastor, John the Just. Just meaning he he has exceeding virtue. He displays such a high level of integrity he is so virtuous and trustworthy, we want to name him James the Just. He was also known as Oblias, which is a word which means he was a shield or bulwark of the people. He was a protector. So he's James the Just by way of his character, and by way of his function, he was James the protector of the people. In other words, he was a courageous and just man. He stood for what was right. He said what was right. He did what was right. He grew up with no honor. He granted Jesus no honor. He assumed a place of high honor, and he lived honorably. That's James. He was a man of prayer. They nicknamed him affectionately Old Camel Knees because of the calluses on his knees, because part of the way he shielded and served the early church was petitioning heaven on behalf of that church. James was a praying man. James was a courageous man. James was a virtuous man. James had experienced the living Christ resurrected from the dead, and it changed his life. He was passionate, and he was a shepherd. There are 108 verses in this little epistle, five chapters. You can read them in 14 minutes out loud. As an encouragement to you, I want to encourage you to begin to read James again. I'm sure some of you did that with us back in the beginning of our study. There's nothing better than to saturate and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in order to gain access to the treasure not normally seen. And the best teacher is the Spirit of God who lives in you, not the man at the front. So as you read through James, and again, you can do that in 14 minutes, 108 verses. Sixty of those words in this book are imperatives. An imperative is a command. It's a non-negotiable exhortation. It'd be like me saying, sit down, Marco. That's a command. I could say, my brother, sit down. That is also a command. James uses my beloved brethren over and over in this book. He is a shepherd who is a prophet. He tells God's people what to do by way of non-negotiation. And the reason he is writing this book is because Paul of Tarsus, has introduced persecution against the church at Jerusalem, Saul of Tarsus, to become Paul. And because of that persecution, all of these Israelites who had gathered to Jerusalem experienced Pentecost from all over the nation. Now being a part of the early church was being persecuted so severely that they're dispersed throughout the whole empire. They are the, verse 1, James 1, the diaspora. You know the term spore. This is diaspora. This is seed blown throughout the empire. By the sovereignty of God, the people of God are dispersed by persecution from a man who hated God, who would ultimately be converted by God, Saul, who would become Paul, persecuting the church, and the church is like seed strewn out all over the empire. There was no colony, province, or place that Jews were not dispersed. Let me read you something that Josephus, a Jewish historian, said. And he cites... Several significant historian, historians of that area area and, and basically it went like this: Not only were they dispersed like seed because of persecution, the Romans, when they conquered an area, wanted to inhabit those cities with people so that they could gain benefit, and they also had control of those people, and they invited their citizens and others who would volunteer to go inhabit these newly conquered lands and cities. And the Jews readily volunteered to be new citizens in a new place. It is hard, quoting, it is hard to find a spot in the whole world, said a Roman historian, which is not occupied and dominated by the Jews. Josephus said, there is no city, no tribe, whether Greek or barbarian, in which Jewish law and Jewish customs have taken no root. So, James, the head of the church at Jerusalem, is writing to Jewish Christians, newly converted, we don't know how long they were benefited by the early fellowship of the church, the teaching of the church, the apostles gathered in Jerusalem. What we know is they were dispersed like seed because of persecution. And part of the attraction to the various corridors of the empire was an opportunity created by the government to move them and plant them in order to benefit from their ingenuity, their industry, their interest, their enthusiasm, and their capacity. They were all over the known world. And I just think it's worthy and pausing right here to say, isn't it amazing the sovereignty of God to use difficult things to supernaturally engineer the promoting the gospel where it hadn't been heard. That is always God's providence and sovereignty and purpose, is to promote the good news that saves and changes the world and elevates the glory of the one who is worthy. Diaspora, I'm writing, and I'm writing driven by a particular desire. And here it is. Here's the big big idea and theme of the book. That you would possess a real, saving, genuine faith that fulfills the purpose of your salvation, which is influence and impact. And secondly, you wouldn't be deceived into believing that believing by itself is enough. That claiming and professing, acknowledging and verbalizing, gathering and sacrificing and worshiping, that you wouldn't be deceived into thinking that all of those outward things validate your faith. This is the senior pastor of Jerusalem, the largest church in the world, writing to the people he had shepherded, dispersed into the world as seeds of the gospel, saying, live like the gospel requires. Genuine faith works, and there is a kind of faith that is useless. Look at chapter 2, verse 14, and by the way, 2.14 is where we're going to pick up when we dig back in, because that's, we ended in verse 13 of chapter 2, but he says in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, notice my brethren, notice what use is it, what value, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works. In other words, you can't do that. You make a claim, and I will show you my faith by my works. The theme of this book is the faith that works. I'm calling it real Christianity because saving faith has a living and real reality that flows from it. The subtitle of the book of James, as I understand it, is not just faith that works or real Christianity, the kind of faith that's useful both now and in eternity but it is the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. I imagine that what James has been hearing is a report from the distant places where God's people have been dispersed, and he's hearing reports that aren't enthusiastically encouraging to him. The people of God not living as the people of God. And so it's like he takes up his pen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and 60 times says, you need to live this way. This is non-negotiable if you have a real faith. And there's a kind of faith that can talk, but it's useless. And there's a kind of faith that says, I have it, but has no works to validate it. There's the kind of faith that makes professions, but doesn't have have a living reality. There's a kind of faith that's useless, listen to me, and impotent it has no influence it's actually counterproductive to make a claim and not validate that claim by the realities of living working faith is actually injurious to the gospel it undermines its credibility and its veracity number of ways you could entitle this book, Genuine Faith Works, Proofs of Genuine and Saving Faith, How Real Faith Works, and How Genuine Christians Should Live. I like the lifestyle and convictions of a biblical Christian. If you're a Christian, these are your convictions. This is the way you live, and if you don't live this way, you need to adjust the way you live. If you don't live this way, you need to examine your heart because you may not be in Christ, you just may be talking as if you are a follower. Of Christ. There is kind of faith that mean, needs to be displayed to the end that others will see what the gospel is, who Jesus is, and desire the things you possess because they see it lived out in your real life. Now, listen, you're in a culture that needs to see the truth, amen? They need to see it. They need to hear it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, but they need to see living, actual faith lived out in a compelling and a convicting and a validating way. And this is the book for Christians who need to know how to live. You want to calibrate yourself? This is how you calibrate yourself. By assessing and evaluating how real Christians live and think. All right, James chapter 1, verse 1. There's another thing that you ought to refer to when you think of James, not just the just, not just Oblius, the bulwark of the people, the shield, the courageous leader, not just camel knees, the passionate petitioner and prayer, but listen how he defines himself. James a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bondservant, you know, is not the best way to translate what James calls himself. James calls himself a doulos. Did everybody get their legacy standard Bible? Did you get to stand in line and buy one? Well, what you're going to read, if you read that, you're going to read James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, James didn't refer to himself as the pastor of the largest church in Jerusalem. He didn't say, I'm a prominent leader. He didn't say, I'm the personal witness of Jesus Christ. You know, he appeared to me. Oh, hey, Peter, Paul, when they came to Jerusalem, they sought guidance and counsel from me. Hey, I grew up with Jesus. He didn't say, I grew up among The Son of God, I did not grow up in a place of honor. He did not say, I am the first among equals. He did not say, I am the just. I am a prayer warrior. James defines himself with one word, I am a doulos. Now listen, you may not think highly of that word, but that word means everything to a true Christian who understands who he is, and therefore who they are. A was an absolute possession. Their will was not their own, their will belonged to their master. Everything they owned and everything they had belonged to God. It denotes the one who is derived or deprived, rather, of his personal freedom and so becomes fully an instrument in the hands of his master. He is one who can never say no to his master. Everything he has, he belongs to the master. And when James says, I am the, master, the slave of God, he's saying, God is my master and his son Jesus Christ is my Lord and whatever he says i'm committed to doing and he is calling god's people to live in a way that honors the one who loved them and gave himself for them there's a second thing you ought to know about this book before we jump in and that is there's a theme there's several themes that run through it And one of those themes is the idea of judgment, assessment, evaluation. I want you to look at chapter 2 and verse 12. James says, one of these imperative statements, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, and your no, no, the end of 12, so that you may not fall under judgment. James chapter 4, Verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? You're not to judge. But you will be judged, and you will not be assessed by your fellow brothers and sisters. That is prohibited. But what is sure and certain is there will be an assessment of your life, your words, your actions, your obedience to the commissioned call of a slave to the master himself. And whether it's the Bema seat of Corinthians or the burning of wood, hay, and stubble, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there will be an assessment. And part of what I want to encourage you as your brother and fellow slave is assess yourself. Because you will be assessed. You will be assessed. And what this book provides is categories or are categories where you can say, how am I doing? Because these imperatives are proofs of your salvation, and they are the measure of the reward that comes when you meet your judge and master. There's another thing that this kind of living out faith does. It not only proves your faith, It not only gives you an evaluation tool to assess your faith in preparation, but it also means to perfecting your faith. I want you to look at James chapter 2 and verse 22, and it's a reference to Abraham offering his son Isaac. And the word justified is not used in the typical imputed as righteous. Justified means to declare righteous. That's one of its meanings. So when you receive by faith the gospel of Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ is legally and forensically deposited to your account. You possess perfect righteousness. It is not your own. It is a gift. The word justified. In this book, the word justified is not being used as declared righteous, but listen to me, but rather as validated to be righteous. Verse 22, let's read 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Not declared righteous by his works, but validated as righteous by his works. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Otherwise, it would be, hey, because he was willing to offer Isaac, he was declared to be righteous. No, he was declared to be righteous because he believed God. Remember, Abraham staggered not at the promise of God. Romans chapter 4 grew strong through faith, being confident that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, God declared and imputed, called Abraham righteous faith birthed his righteousness, but obedience validated that righteousness. His works validated his claim and his condition. Now look at verse 22. Not only proves faith, it not only validates it. Verse 21, you see that faith, watch this, was working with his works And as a result of the works, faith was what? Say it out loud. Perfected. And what does that mean? It means when you live your faith, you grow and perfect and mature your faith. Faith is not only the secure of righteousness. Faith is the means to the sanctification that validates your righteousness. When you obey by faith the prescriptive desires of God who is worthy of your worship, you grow your faith. You perfect it. A lot of Christians are stunted in their fellowship because they don't obey what they need to do as a slave of the master. And by their disobedience, they stunt their growth. And every time you come up against a moment where you're going to obey or disobey, trust or not trust, you have an opportunity to grow or not grow. Because true faith is not not only is validated by your works, your works are a tool and a means to perfect and grow and mature your faith. Which is what verse 22 says, as a result of the works, faith was teleos, matured, it grew. It's the same idea in chapter 1 where it says, let endurance, verse 4, have its perfect result. Let your trouble produce an outcome that grows you so that you're whole, complete, and lacking in nothing. You're more like Christ. More mature, more Christ-like, more capable. How? Because you're applying your faith. This is God's exercise program for every Christian. And you're going to have that opportunity today. Sometime today, you're going to have a life choice to make. I'm going to live my faith, or I'm going to deny it. I'm going to validate it, or I'm going to not validate it. This is the opportunity that James promotes. One final big idea of thought. Faith properly understood is integrated in all of life, and it shows up in everything. This is five chapters, 108 verses, and it touches about every category of your life. Genuine faith, real Christianity, is life Christianity. It's not just on Sunday religious activity. It's the way you live on Monday. It's the way you live on Thursday. It's what you do at work. It's what you do in your neighborhood. It is all an expression of what a Christian is. All right. Chapter 1, here we go, high speed. And listen, I just believe if you don't understand the context of this, you will not get it. Chapter 1, real Christians. This is genuine Christianity. This is how James would communicate how a real Christian thinks and lives. The very first thing James would say is, a real Christian deals with difficulty differently and successfully. You want to measure yourself as a Christian? Take a good hard look at how you deal with difficulty. The stuff that comes from the outside, the external, the material, the financial, and the internal, the temptation that comes up from the inside. This is chapter 1, 2 through 18. Summarized as real Christians deal with difficulty... Differently and successfully. Outward outward difficulty, 2 through 8. Financial difficulty, 9 through 10. Inward difficulty, 11 through 18. Let me say it a different way. Genuine faith is proven in how it deals with difficult things. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Encounter, you run into them. The thing that ought to lead the way is you consider that an opportunity. You're to consider it joy when you run into trouble. Why? Verse 3, the participle that modifies the requirement to consider it all joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You deal with difficulty differently and successfully than someone who doesn't know Christ because you have faith and they don't is because you see your trouble for what it is you see it as a test that reveals your condition that's what tests do they're an assessing tool you know what your trouble is it's an opportunity to expose your new your your reality what you really are and what james says is hey count that a joy that you're getting an assessment that's going to help you know by way of diagnosis what's inadequate or wrong with your faith it needs to be addressed much rather to know I've got a problem than to be cruising right along with no idea that I have a weakness and deficiencies in my spiritual health condition. I want a good diagnosis. Troubles bring an opportunity to expose. They are a test to reveal, but they're also an exercise to strengthen you. Count it all joy when you get into trouble, knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. Endurance. When you see endurance, just think think of the word strength. It's the ability to remain under a weight. It is literally meno to abide, hoopo under. You have the ability to stay under a load. Equaling, I'm stronger. My trouble will not only reveal weakness, it will be an exercise to strengthen me. Verse four, let endurance have its perfect result, its end game outcome. That's its goal, so that you may be perfect. That's teleos mature, complete, meaning you're sacrificially and by way of worship without flaw. In other words, you're Christ like in your lifestyle and attitudes, and therefore you lack nothing. And the lacking in nothing is a military term which means I've got all of the assets I need, whether it's guns or ammo whether it's tanks or soldiers. I've got everything I need. There is no deficiency to accomplish the mission for which I've been called. Now, here's what a real Christian does. Real Christians see their difficulty as an opportunity to see where they need to grow, an exercise that produces strength, that will result in a lifestyle that reflects Christ mature and lacks no thing for the mission for which that slave has been called by his master. They see trouble for what it is, but they're not adequate. They see themselves for who they are. They lack wisdom, verse five, first class condition in Greek, Since, but since, that the if is not a conditional, it's an emphatic, since you lack wisdom. Let him ask of God, who's the person who needs wisdom? The person in trouble. Why? They need guidance. There's all kinds of troubles you get into. You don't know what to do. This says, since you lack wisdom. First class condition in the Greek language is an emphatic way of saying something that's true, not something that might be true. And I like this illustration because I think it communicates, if I say to you, listen, if I'm a man, treat me like a man. Now use the word if a condition. Might be true I am, might be true I'm not. I'm gender confused, I'm not sure. That's not what I meant. You know what I meant. If I'm a man, treat me like a man. It's an emphatic way of saying, since I'm a man, treat me like I'm a man. This is the first class condition, verse 5. If you don't get this, you're in trouble when you're in trouble. Since you lack... Ask the na- Oh, You don't have anything, you're desperately, all the empty. The cupboards are bare. When it comes to the wisdom that you need to navigate difficulty, you have nothing. You can't get it from a book. You can't get it from a buddy. You get it from God, who is the source of wisdom. And since you are desperately inadequate, you're intrinsically unable to know what to do when life brings you something difficult, go get it from God, who gives it generously. And he gives it generously without reproach, no shame, graciously. And if you ask in faith, passionate prayer, which he goes on to say, Verse 5, who gives to all generously without reproach, that's graciously. Here's the promise, it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith. That's a present tense idea. It's a consistent asking, what do I do now? And it will be given to him. He must ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, including the wisdom he needs to navigate the trouble, which is providentially designed to make him what otherwise he would not be. Because he's a double-minded man, two-souled, unstable in all of his ways. Real Christians deal with difficulty differently. They see the trouble for what it is, and they see God for who He is. They see who they are for who they, in their humanity, are challenged to be. Verse 9, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory. He's going to apply the trial to troubles financially, but the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. He's got humble poverty. But he's to glory in his position. The truth, the wisdom applied to this guy is my financial condition is not the real source of my identity. My source of identity is in Christ, not my bank account. That's wisdom applied to financial challenges. Verse 10, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation as it relates to his temporary condition, both his life and his assets. Because like a flowering grass, he'll pass away. That's the permanent reality. Money's not the source of identity. It is here and gone. Verse 11, for the sun rises with a scorching wind, withers the grass, its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits. It's all temporary. Don't, don't, don't identify with that. Identify with who you are in Christ. If you have nothing, remember who you are, the inheritor of everything. And listen, if you're a Christian and you're alive and breathing, everything the Father has is available to you based on his wisdom, and you're trusting him for what you need. You are like the flowers of the grass. You're like the bird of the sky. He will provide, and he does so abundantly as you trust him. Verse 13 introduces us to the idea of inward trouble. Christians deal with inward trouble by recognizing what it is and who God is as it relates to that inward temptation. Because inward temptation, the solicitation to do evil, is a real challenge. Let no one say when he is tempted, verse 13, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Christians think about God differently. Number one, he brings providential trouble to grow me. He's willing to provide wisdom to help me, and he never tries to hurt me. He is good every day. No trouble I have is a product of God's activity. He cannot be tempted by evil, and he does not tempt anyone. God is not the source of my trouble as it relates to temptation, but rather my desire The flesh, the world, and my enemy, the devil. Verse 14, each one, he talks about the the process. Everybody's drawn, they're deceived. There's an inward human hunger. They're driven and deceived, and a, a lure comes along, and we make a decision that is painful and hurtful. Each one is tempted, verse 14, when he is carried away and enticed. That's a hunting and fishing term, like a lure in the water by his own lust. Lust is epithumia. I'm hungry. It's not just passions that are carnal or perverse. I'm just hungry. I'm hungry for relationships. I'm hungry for intimacy. I'm hungry for satisfaction. I'm hungry for affirmation. Those are human appetites. And those human appetites drive me to self-satisfaction or they drive me to God's satisfaction. And I get in trouble when I have hunger, that I do not allow God to satisfy. I do it myself. Last Sunday, when Hovid was taking us through david 's confession and confrontation, a verse stood out to me that I actually a series of verses that I hadn't thought about in this way. Everybody kind of who's Christian very long, you know about Nathan's confrontation. The, uh, the little lamb story and David saying that guy deserves to die and then Nathan saying on behalf of God you're that man everybody knows that but what I didn't remember is what came next what Nathan said after he said David you're the man what he said is the Lord God says to you it is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house. And I gave you your master's wives. I made you king over the house of Israel and Judah. Now listen, this is God talking to David. And if that were too little, I would have given you more. I would have given to you many more things like these. Did you hear that? I did all of this for you, David. I'm a good and generous and gracious God. And I gifted to you elevation, protection, provision, satisfaction. And if that were too little, I would, would have added to you more things, many more things like these. You know what that says? I'm a good God. If you'll just ask me, I'm not just generous with wisdom. I'm generous with everything you need. Look at verse 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God was good enough to say, David, if that were too little, I would have given you more. You don't have to self-satisfy. You know, that's what sin is for us. It's Harry deciding God's not going to provide it, so I'll go get it. Whether it's protection, whether it's satisfaction, whether it's self-promotion, I'm going to fix it. And what God said to David is, if that were too little, I would have added to you many more things just like these. And then he says this. So, David, why have you despised the law of the Lord? Why have you treated me as nothing and done this evil in my sight? Because I'm a good God, and I'm a generous God, and I'm a providing God. Will you not be a child of God who trusts me? Chapter 1, 2 through 18 is the declaration that sin happens because we're hungry And we're enticed, verse 14, by our own lust. And lust conceives, verse 15, our will and the opportunity come together in a decision. It gives birth to sin, that's disobedience. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Verse 16, do not be deceived. Be like me looking at you to say, cornerstone, don't be deceived. This is how it works. And you're my beloved brethren. Please don't fumble the ball thinking God did it. Please recognize that God is willing to gift you with assets, provision, protection, and deliverance if you'll but trust him. When you're in trouble outside, you need wisdom you don't have. When you have material trouble, you need to see yourself for who you really are. And when you have internal challenges, you need to not only see where the trouble comes from, but you need to trust the God that delivered you to make you into the image of his son, which is verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what first fruits were? Worship offerings. The first and the best given to the the people of God, the representatives of God, to be offered as worship to God in recognition that the giver who is the best gave the first, and you're giving the first and the best back to him, and through the exercise of his will, not your will, he brought you forth by the word of truth to not only change you, give you eternal life, declare you righteous, but to commission you as an agent of worship. For God to send temptation is contrary to the purposes of God and the character of God. The purpose of God is to make you a worshiper. He's not going to send you temptations that defeat that purpose. And the goodness of God is generous giving so you don't have to pursue sinning. And James comes out of the gate by saying, you want to be a real Christian? You got to deal with trouble differently than what comes natural." And you got to deal with trouble successfully by trusting God, seeing yourself for who you are, and allowing that difficulty to be used for his glory. Can you say amen to that? So, we got started. <laughs> Let me invite you to re- take 14 minutes a day and read the book. Do it three days a week. That's not terribly ambitious. Second thing, pick out a verse, one verse each time you read it and write it down and spend some time thinking about it. What does this verse mean? What are the implications of this and how does my life change because of this? Because the greatest living leader of the church of Jerusalem is calling the church of Jesus Christ in Sun Valley, California to live their faith. And how does your faith need to look as you live it? For the glory of the one who is placing you like seed in a culture that needs the truth desperately, not just people who say it, but people who validate it as legitimate and real. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. That is who you are. The call is to be who you are. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open this book today and to jump back into the treasure of truth. Thank you for James. Thank you for his character, his conviction, his pastor's heart, and his prophetic, courageous voice Help us to hear these words as if they were written, not in the 60s, 62 A.D., but as if they were written today, from our pastor to us as we go out throughout the community, inspired by heaven, calling us to live what we believe, real Christianity, that not only might we be blessing and benefit to our neighborhood and our community and our workmates, but we'll be blessed and you'll be blessed. That's my prayer, and I ask it today in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.